Doesn't 1 Timothy 2.12 say that a wim- women cannot teach or have authority over a man? Isn't that because Adam was created first? Is from our 1 Timothy 2.11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became the sinner, or became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. So I want to look at um, these verses and first talk about the fact that whenever we're coming to the Bible that we need to be aware of the context in which the letter was written. So this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus. And so as we're interpreting that, we need to take into account the background and the backdrop if we're to interpret it correctly. So Paul in this letter is addressing specific concerns So when he's writing these words, his words have an intention, they have a goal, and they have a target, and they have a very specific aim. Paul is addressing issues and problems and concerns in a very particular location in what is happening in the church of Ephesus. (coughs) And we know historically that Ephesus was the centre for the cult of Artemis and we know that one of the beliefs of the cult or the religion was that women were superior to men and so people were being saved out of a culture in which they believed women were superior to men and so what's happening in the church at the time is that there are false teachers throughout the community People are teaching false doctrine, things that are not true. And Paul is bringing specifically a correction to the church because some of the people who were spreading false teaching and false doctrine were women who had previously not been educated in either um, (coughs) education in a sense of schooling education or education in the faith, because if you remember, um, women in that culture and that society were not considered as those who needed an education. And so Paul is addressing the fact that women are propagating false teaching. And one of the things that Paul is very concerned to do, and what these verses are designed to do, he's concerned to stop the flow of the poison that is destroying that local church. Part of his intention in 1 Timothy is to stop anything that is killing love, unity and peace between people. So a list of some of the things that's going on that you can read later on are there's false teaching throughout the church community including instructions on law and ancestry that's in 1 Timothy 1, 4, 7 to 11 
There's teaching going on that's saying you should abstain from marriage and certain foods and focus on myths and knowledge. There's anger and quarrelling between the men going on in the community. That's in, he talks about that in 2.8. There's immodest dress amongst the women. He talks about the way they're dressed that was inappropriate in this community. He says that there were women professing spirituality whilst living and practicing an otherwise life. There was unsubmissive. There was unsubmissive or argumentative learning amongst the women. There was unrest because of what the women were teaching. There was unrest because of how the women were exercising authority over men. Women were being deceived. There was confusion around traditional roles of mothering and childbearing amongst the women. Widows in the community were bringing unnecessary financial strain on the community and some of those women were propagating error. There was friction, envy, slander and, submission, and suspicion amongst the community. Would you want to be part of that local church? <laughs> a lot going on in Ephesus. And so Paul is writing to a church that's really in crisis. And so we have to ask, would these particular instructions given in chapter 2 and two, 9 to 15, would those instructions have been given to this community were it not for the backdrop and the context and what was going on? Would Paul have had to say, I do not permit a woman to, to teach or have authority over a man if there was not a problem of false teaching being propagated by women who were taking authority over a man and spreading lies and half-truths. So this chapter then is specifically corrective to a specific location, but there's still the reality that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. So even though it's to a specific context and a specific culture and a specific moment, there are things we can still draw out from it. So Paul is looking at this community and he's saying it's lacking peace, it's lacking quietness, and being peaceable, so quietness is actually not about not speaking, it's about being peaceable. So he's always attacking things that are destroying love, unity, and peace. So the way women were speaking was undermining <coughs> peace, and submission is actually about agreement, that community would have peace between one another as they agree on the central doctrines of who Christ is and how we're to outwork this reality in life. And so Paul is addressing dominion, division, quarrelling, and anything that undermines peace and unity. Paul is writing to Timothy instructions for promoting and guarding peace. Because how women were in that moment learning and teaching and exercising authority was not promoting peace. It was creating dominion, division and quarrelling. He was addressing that. In other words, effective learning. So it's not about women not learning. He wants them to learn. He's saying effective learning is only possible when your heart is in a place of submission. That you can't learn anything new 
if you're not peaceable and submitted to the one instructing you who has more knowledge than you. In other words, it is very hard to learn if you are the one doing all the talking. (laughs) So the interpretation of these verses must be taken in the context that they were written. Surely Paul can't be teaching and instructing a ban on women teaching and exercising gifting in all contexts. If it's a universal command to not teach or exercise the gift of leadership or authority, why are there so many women in different parts of the New Testament doing just that? As Paul As someone said, Paul would have to be suffering from some kind of schizophrenia. That he would be having to talk about Ephesus different to how he is doing it all over the place. And we've got examples of those that we've looked at in previous weeks. So he's not anti-speaking. He's anti-divisiveness. So, people then ask, was this verse then a (coughs) prohibition or a forbidding or a legal statement intended for all places at all times for all cultures and all situations or are they just instructions to deal with the problems of a specific church in a specific moment our conviction is it's a little like martial law when you have military control (coughs) Sometimes it's necessary for nations to experience military control in moments of crisis and division and hostility and danger. But that is not the way society ideally is to run on all occasions, only in times of crisis. So then it comes to the question of why does Paul then refer to Adam? And Adam was the one, um, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. What do you make of that? Doesn't that completely contradict your week to preach? So Paul... (laughs) is attaching Genesis into this verse as a powerful illustration of why women at this time should first learn well and then speak. So women in Ephesus were teaching and leading illegitimately because they didn't understand, they hadn't been taught And they were leading with a type of authority that was domineering, controlling and divisive. Women in Ephesus were teaching and leading illegitimately. And consequently, because of a lack of learning, were leading people into deception. You are only at risk of deception if your understanding of truth is lacking. That is why Paul wants women to learn accurately first. The illustration is this. Eve was dependent 
in the context of creation and the garden, she was dependent in that context of creation order to be taught the instructions of what God said about what was permissible and what was not permissible. She was dependent to be taught by Adam what God had instructed. She was reliant upon, in that moment, the learning instructions from Adam. That we believe that they were both equal, equal in the sight of God, equal in being created in a reflection of the glory of God, and equal to co-labor and co-rule together. But initially she's in a place of learning from Adam. That these Ephesian women were in this historical moment dependent upon men for learning sound doctrine and sound understanding. Because they had had no access to education and learning from the scriptures. What Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus is right now what is needed is to learn in quiet submission Otherwise, you are teaching men and women without understanding. Do not believe that this is necessarily intending to be a ban for all places, all cultures and (coughs) all times. Paul is saying what is necessary right now is this. Women learn quietly. Be properly grounded in the truth first. So he's saying, presently, until this happens, this is what some commentators are saying as an interpretation of these verses, you could say it, I do not permit a woman to have authority, could be translated, presently, until this learning happens, I do not permit right now. So the principle that we can guard from this is to raise high standards on who is allowed to pass on biblical truth (coughs) and an understanding that Paul is addressing to that community what is needed right now. And so the next one is 1 Timothy 3. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must be in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, How can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience They must first be tested and then see if there is nothing against them. Let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife 
and must manage his household and his household manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent understanding or an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So the first thing to understand from 1 Timothy 3 is that in the ancient Greek language, it's primarily a male language. So it means that even when the writer is addressing both men and women in an audience, it speaks only in masculine terms and only will address brothers. And so often you find that in your Bible it says, dear brothers, and then you go into the bottom in the footnotes, it says brothers and sisters. So Paul, using a very natural convention of the time, would only speak in masculine terms whilst addressing both brothers and sisters. It was a male-centred culture. That's the backdrop. Men predominantly would have been the leaders because they would have been the only one educated and trained in that culture. So men, naturally, in this moment of historical time, dominated the scene of Christian leadership. It mirrored the culture. So a question we have to ask is, how much significance should be given to that historic moment now? Just because it was the way it was then, does that mean that's for all times and all places and should be that way now? Just because something was, doesn't mean it always was meant to be. And we can see that with the issue of slavery. And you can listen to Rochelle's talk from last week on historical trajectory and how things were breaking out in the New Testament. In other words, is there enough in 1 Timothy 3 to be prescriptive and legally established, or is it merely describing what was happening in that cultural moment? (coughs) Indeed, if you read the text, the barring or the exclusion of women was not explicitly stated. So if it was going to be prescriptive and legally binding for all places at all times, the barring of women needs to be explicitly stated to be convincing as a legal or prescriptive command to exclude women. We can't just assume that women were excluded for all times and all places because of the male language, because that's the only language they would have communicated with. Interestingly, the New Testament gives no names or no examples of elders anywhere in the New Testament. There are no named elders. There's a deacon, Phoebe, but there are no named elders. And interestingly, the same male language is used to describe deacons, but we know that Phoebe, a woman, was a deacon. Also, interestingly, Paul introduces the chapter. Now the over... um, Verse 1 is not here. Not here. (laughs) (coughs) Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Interestingly, Paul introduces chapter 3 with a gender-exclusive form of anyone 
rather than any man. If anyone desires the office of overseer, it's a feminine form of language. Now that is not absolute categorical tr- that is not a categorical proof of the inclusion of women, but it's an interesting observation that he should choose a feminine form in the beginning. Some people say, what about the statement one woman man or faithful to one woman. Actually, that would be apparently on lots of gravestones of men. It would say one woman man. That was not a requirement that elders should be married, but was expressing the virtue of faithfulness that needs to be found in a man if he is going to be appointed as an overseer. In other words, it could not have been a universal requirement for men to be married if they were to become an overseer. Otherwise, you'd have a problem with what about widows? What about the divorced? And what about the unmarried? What about Paul? And what about Jesus? You'd have trouble there. Interestingly, in the book of Titus, to conclude this section... In the book of Titus, where Paul is talking to Titus about the list of requirements and character traits that an overseer needs to have, he also opens with the gender-inclusive feminine word, anybody, rather than any man. And it's also very interesting that when Paul writes to Titus, he does not include any prohibition or any legal statement that a woman can't have authority or teach. In that context, he doesn't speak about that. So that further undergirds and under (coughs) reinforces the fact that Paul is addressing a very, very (coughs) specific context. Katia in Adams, who's married to Julian Adams, has written a book called Equal, and it's really a great little summary And I just wanted to read you these things because it's quite funny what she says. She says, if you want to be dogmatic in your conclusion, if you want to be dogmatic in your exclusion of women, then please be equally dogmatic in all your exclusions. I wonder why... I wonder why we often find it more important to be dogmatic on a stipulation not present in the text rather than dogmatic on the stipulations that are present for all to see. So, if you are a church leader who believes that women should not be excluded, if you are a church leader who believes that women should be excluded from overseeing eldership, please ensure that either yourself, please ensure that neither yourself nor anyone on your eldership teams falls into any of these categories. So she says, make sure that no one on your team are men who are not married. Make sure there are no men who have been widowed or remarried. For we cannot literally use one woman man as an argument for the exclusion of women if we are still then not to follow it further literal translation to exclude those who have been with more than one woman, whatever the reason. You have to exclude men who are divorced and have been remarried. 
men who are married but don't have children, because having children is included in the list. You'd, men who are married but only one child would have to be excluded, because note that all the verses in relation to children yes. are plural. <laughs> men who have children who are rebellious, that's in which, of, which parent of a toddler or teenager would be exempt from this, I wonder? <laughs> men who have children who are not saved, which would presumably mean men with very young children are excluded, because how can they prove <coughs> that their children are saved? Men who are not hospitable. This might not be fashionable in our current day understanding of introverts, but any elder who are not opening their homes to people in the community stand in direct contradiction to this. Men who are quarrelsome or violent, men who drink too much alcohol. Who is to set the bar on this, I wonder? I know a number of church leaders who drink more alcohol than the medically recommended limit. <laughs> um, men who are recent converts. And we see, actually, in Acts, as Paul went around and appointing elders into local churches, <coughs> he actually appointed um, new converts into those new churches because they had to be new converts because they were new churches. Yeah. And the final one, men who are not self-controlled. <laughs> 